Dr. Thomas Slavin, Chief Medical Officer for Myriad Genetics. Welcome to Inside the Genome. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we have Tin Yun Tang. He is a resident doctor at Case Western Reserve School of Medicine. We are so happy to have you on the podcast today, Tin. Thank you for coming on. Yes, thank you for inviting me on to the uh, podcast, TJ. Yeah. Happy to be here. Yeah, no, this is great. Um, you know, I think this is a great uh, time that we can highlight, you know, what's going on on, uh, you know, the clinician side on educating our future workforce in genetics. So I, I wanted to definitely talk about that. Um, and then there's some exciting research going on at Case Western Reserve. Uh, but before we get into all that, um, tell the audience a little bit about your background and, you know, how you got into genetics, what, you know, drove that passion, you know, where you're going, because you're still, you know, you're just starting out your career. Yep, you know, so uh, I guess a little bit about myself, went to medical school at Thomas Jefferson University in Philly, and that is actually kind of where I got interested in medical genetics. I ended up joining a research lab at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I worked on hemophilia gene therapy initially. This yeah. was under uh, Dr. Catherine High's lab when she was uh, still running the, I believe it was the Molecular Medicine Institute at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I subsequently went to do a formal bench research here uh, through Howard Hughes Medical Institute Medical Research Fellows Program, where I actually worked on uh, microRNAs and neurodegenerative disorders. So I kind of got really drawn into this kind of uh, medical genetics world of how to intervene, gene therapy, uh, genome editing, because, you know, of course, uh, around that time, that's when a lot of the bench labs were really starting to focus on the power of CRISPR as opposed to uh, zinc fingers or talons, which are mm -hmm. uh, older technologies, still have their usages, but uh, just older technologies. So that is kind of how I got interested in medical genetics. Yeah, so, so you were doing some CRISPR research then as part of your training? I, I wouldn't say I was uh, fully focused on using CRISPR in a formal project, just kind of playing around with it mm -hmm. a little mm -hmm. bit at most is what I would yeah. say. Uh, most just, of my work. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I, I was going to say too, just because some people might not know what CRISPR is. I mean, uh, do you want to give like a quick lay person's uh, description? In the gene therapy world, you know, there's always been a goal of potentially fixing uh, a gene, whether it's a point mutation or some silencing, a deletion. Uh, there's always been a goal of trying to uh, deliver a gene itself or otherwise uh, delete a gene. Mm -hmm. uh, CRISPR. And I know I'm going to muck this up. It's a long right. acronym, but it's derived from a bacterial immune response system, actually. And it recognizes bits of DNA and it cuts uh, DNA up. The power really of CRISPR came in uh, because of how easy to use it is. Mm -hmm. uh, zinc fingers and talons, those require by and far protein engineering. Every time you want to target a different portion of the genome for any sort of uh, double strand break, which is mm -hmm. uh, forms the backbone to allow for editing. Uh, although there are newer technologies now that don't require uh, double strand breaks, but what CRISPR allows you to do is almost a copy and paste. Hey, this is the portion of the genome I want to target. You copy and paste it into the system and you can use it out of the box almost. Yeah, for genome editing, so, that's really amazing, yeah. So it's really powerful. And I remember, uh, you know, when it first came out, 
you know, kind of a number of years ago that a lot of the research labs were, especially the ones that were doing zinc finger work, you know, and Tan's work, were kind of looking at it very critically and thinking kind of deeply, sort of, would this be the next wave of technology? Just because of the fact that there have always been a lot of limitations with zinc fingers in talent. Yeah. Well, you've, you've proven to our audience that you are a bona fide researcher <laughs> in the last two minutes. No, that's great. So, um, you know, what, so what uh, have you been uh, doing at uh, Case Western Reserve in terms of training and, and where are you going with all this? Yeah. So because of my interest in really kind of uh, gene therapy, genome editing, I thought a very logical extension for when I finished medical school would be uh, something that's called a combined residency in internal medicine and medical genetics and genomics. Uh, this is a combined track training. I uh, Perhaps those in the medical world would be more familiar with uh, MedPeds, medicine mm -hmm. pediatrics or pediatric genetics. It's a similar idea for your program, a combined training, really trying to tie the two worlds together. Yeah. You know, internal medicine, uh, there's so much going on now with uh, what is precision medicine? You know, uh, how do you use polygenic risk scores? How do you use genetics in a more intelligent manner? Mm -hmm. How does the program work then? Do you do like a year um, in internal medicine to start and then kind of flip flop between the two for a while? Yeah, I finished my uh, intern year uh, at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. University Hospitals Cleveland Medical Center program. So I did a full uh, internal medicine intern year. Mm -hmm. And then years two, three, and four, I've been uh, kind of splitting my time and trying to cross over uh, both residencies uh, dispersed throughout years two, three, and four. Yeah. And then uh, as, as part of that, you sprinkle in some research as well. Some, it sounds, some dedicated research months. As one would expect for a person with interest in medical genetics, uh, have a strong interest in different kinds of research endeavors. Uh, most of the bench research time comes out of medical genetics. I'm wrapping up my time right now, actually finishing up on a personal project uh, that is focused on mosaicism in TP53. Um, but beyond that, there is a very heavy emphasis as one would expect for this kind of training on staying current with mm -hmm. the medical literature. Uh, trying to figure out original lines of research and uh, discovery. Yeah, yeah. And what other kind of training programs are out there right now, to your knowledge? Because it is a pretty fast-moving field. I mean, even since I went through training. I think it's it still remains rare. I, I think the uh, Associate Board of Internal Medicine and the uh, Medical Genetics and Genomics Boards, they have like a very nicely written joint statement. There are not very many programs out there right now, which combines mm -hmm. internal medicine and medical genetics. I believe there are five in the country. Oh, really? Okay. Because yes. even when I, I mean, when I started, there were zero. And I think uh, uh, case was, uh, I, I could be wrong, but I think we were the first to have the internal medicine. Uh, also, maybe the first to have the peds. And that's uh, part of the reason I, you know, I always had an interest in adult uh, genetics, but, you know, I went into peds genetics, because that was the the main, com that was actually the only offered combined program at the time um, where you could do uh, just like you. I mean, uh, a mix of, you know, the dual residencies. And then um, I did a dedicated year of research. I did five years at the time. So they've now changed uh, that program a little bit. I don't know if that one actually still exists uh, anymore on the PEDS or the internal medicine side, but. 
I believe that my year, and I'm graduating in year 2021 from the four-year track, I was actually the first person to oh, go wow. through the four-year track. That's what we're going to uh, title my, this podcast, First Person. <laughs> <laughs> my senior, who I'm graduating with in uh, two weeks, uh, he just finished the five-year track. Okay, yeah. And everyone else moving forward, our pipeline here at Case is full. We have been very fortunate uh, to recruit a very talented uh, physician scientist throughout all the years. Um, our pipeline's full. We have someone coming in from a PGY one year, and we have years two, three, four. Yeah. So it sounds like they're all moving to four-year programs. And I think that was part of the initiative uh, by the genetics board to really try to, um, you know, make it easier maybe in the long run to, to get people trained up in genetics. So yeah, that's good. You're also unique in the sense that, you know, you have a heavy, um, you know, you just brought up TB53. You also have a, a heavy hand in uh, the cancer world. You know, where are you, um, you know, where do you see yourself going? I mean, what are you furthering your education in that regard? Yeah, so I was very fortunate to uh, match this year to a hematology oncology fellowship through an oh. internal medicine route. Uh, I'll be continuing on my training at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Yeah, I've heard of it. It's a good place. <laughs> no, that's it's a uh, big that's place. Very exciting. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you know, you will be part of that, you know, new guard then, you know, that's uh, really going to have a good handle on, you know, not only you know, internal medicine. So taking care of adult patients for anything, but also, you know, genetics and then layering on top of real expertise then in oncology, you know, where do you see genomics kind of fitting into the everyday medical oncology? I mean, because you're really going to come at this from a, a very trained, you know, expert background. Yeah. You know, I'm glad you uh, brought up specifically the uh, phrase genomics TJ, because it did not escape my notice that a couple of years ago, uh, the Associate Board of Medical Genetics renamed themselves to mm -hmm. Medical Genetics and Genomics. Yeah. Uh, and of course, this is a personal opinion, but I do think a lot of where medicine is going really is in the genomic world, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in oncology. You know, I think uh, there's an emphasis on uh, somatic sequencing now to the point where it's almost a near standard of care. Yeah. And I think there's a growing appreciation too that for somatic sequencing that time points is important. The genomics of the cancer itself changes across time. And I know there's a number of different industrial offerings where uh, they offer to repeat uh, genomic sequencing. If you acquire a different tissue sample after different treatment courses, after relapse and so forth. Um, I think from a pure old school medical genetics side, uh, which is kind of how I think of a single gene disorders, BRCA1, BRCA2, these are genes that are becoming actionable mm -hmm. on the germline side. You know, I believe the uh, Olympia trial at the time of recording was uh, reported out only a couple of weeks ago in New England Journal of Medicine. Mm -hmm. and that is a study that demonstrates a, a benefit to using olaparib uh, for patients with breast cancer in the adjuvant setting with uh, yeah. BRCA1 Early and BRCA2. Yeah. 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 And you know, those are used as kind of long-term maintenance adjuvant. Mm -hmm. It also did not escape my notice that uh, certain uh, for metastatic uh, prostate cancer, that is a castration resistant. There was a uh, study published around last year. I forget the name of this mm -hmm. phase three Profound. at this point. Yeah. Profound. There we go. But that study is notable in that it focused on somatic to qualify mm -hmm. for that study, 
you did not even need a germline BRCA1 or BRCA2. And of course, there's the big pancreatic cancer uh, study a couple of, a year ago too. Mm -hmm. But basically all of these, uh, you know, these genes, these genomics, all these aspects, they're becoming uh, clinically actionable yeah. very, very quickly. You know, I think since I started residency, all of these trials have come out and been published, these large phase one, two, phase three trials. So I think for a practicing medical oncologist in the future, uh, having some sort of uh, grasp for these concepts is going to be necessary. And I think there is a role for oncologists with a particular emphasis on trying to, uh, whether it's direct research or direct clinical trials, figure out how best to use all of this powerful technology that yeah. is now available to us. Do you have a sense of how much standard genetics training is part of now new um, um, oncology training? I think there is, uh, you know, just interacting with the uh, oncologists here at uh, Case Western Reserve University, which would, of course, be Seidman Cancer Center, um, as well as the current fellows that are encountering the wars and the current residents. I think there's a little bit of a uh, area that requires just some more, whatever you want to call it, CME, continuing medical education, or we want to phrase it. I think the uh, genetics and genomics world has really changed. Yeah. I think it's advanced at a breakneck pace and that it can be challenging for uh, some of the attendings and professors and fellows residents at all levels of training to keep a grasp and hold and a pulse on what exactly is going on in the yeah, genetics world. It is just so hard. I mean, you brought up mosaicism. I mean, you know, is something in the germline? Is it in the tumor? Now we do liquid biopsies. Yeah. And what does that mean? Because that's in the blood, but it, it's not germline, it's tumor. And there's things that might be pre-leukemia. I mean, it's a very complex world. Um, you know, if, if you don't have some, you know, good background about what all these things mean in your own head and how to differentiate them. Yeah. And that's before everyone bringing up these gnarly concepts of, can you even calculate cancer cell fraction? Does yeah. that matter? You know, yeah. all of these uh, kind of numbers that are reported out in a lot of different industry uh, somatic sequencing reports where mm -hmm. some of the attendings may not uh, be aware of all of the uh, foundational science behind those that helps with the interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully you're part of the new uh, guard and, uh, you know, help with some of the educational needs at your new center and beyond as, as uh, all this goes forward. Uh, and, you know, one of the reasons I even got in touch with you, I would say, is um, because some of the work that was going on at, at Case Western Reserve, I know there's a, um, you know, discordant family history study. And I was just hoping you could kind of explain a little bit about that or, you know, any other exciting projects going on there just for the audience. Yeah. So this, uh, you know, this study, I believe it's uh, formally called uh, Family History of Discordant Cancers or something similar in the ct.gov listing. The goal of the study was really to almost readdress this very old question of, is there such thing as a general cancer susceptibility gene? You know, for uh, the benefit of the listeners, if they're not aware, there's concordant uh, cancers, which is the cancers that we think of that run along with known genetic syndromes, you know, colorectal cancers for Lynch syndrome, for instance, or in the um, hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndromes, mm -hmm. the HBox syndromes, you know, breast cancer, ovarian cancer. 
What happens though when you have a family that colloquially we would say has far too much cancer in it? Yeah. You know, there's been uh, these, there's a number of families in our practice here in the medical genetics department and uh, patients that have been noticed uh, in the cancer center. You know, this study was uh, initiated really by uh, Dr. Stanton Gerson, who is our interim dean at this point for Case Western Reserve University, as well as the uh, director of Simon Cancer Center. Um, he had a number of patients, you know, that he had accumulated over the decades he's been in practice where they just have so much cancers, you yeah. know, and they on routine medical genetics, what we would call at this point standard of care, these patients do not have any identifiable mutations. So in kind of our canonical, uh, whether it's, you know, different industrial companies, of course, have uh, different genes on their multi-cancer panels, but we can't find any in kind of the lowest hanging, most well-described genes. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean, though, when you have a family where you're just like, wow, that's a lot of cancer across yeah. multiple generations? Yeah. We yeah. arbitrarily set our cutoff for inclusion at five. Uh, that is kind of based on uh, some studies in different communities in Utah and some different uh, Bayesian probability studies that really kind of focus on at what points are you likely to find so either five, a new... five cancers in the immediate family? Is that what you're? Yeah, uh, mm -hmm. five cancers. You know, we're focused really on kind of one to two generations of a family, I would say. So we're looking for at least five different cancers. Uh, within kind of one degree of separation. And uh, a lot of the times these families that we're identifying have far more than five. You know, I consented uh, the first family for inclusion in the trial just about a week ago uh, at recording for this podcast. Uh, they are more near six or seven cancers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, across, you know, a small family and then of course they and this is any type is, of cancer i mean any you know, type like even skin cancer and things like skin that. skin cancer lymphoma mm -hmm. uh, leukemias lymphomas mm -hmm. yeah you know skin cancer is an interesting one i think uh people are finding different rarer of course susceptibility genes to uh even melanoma yeah you know, that comes to mind um, but yeah it's interesting because some of these families too of course there are family members that have zero cancers yeah so that kind of I think it brings up a lot of very interesting potential scientific questions. Yeah. And what are you doing uh, with these families? Are you, you're enrolling them in a study and you're doing so some So we're enrolling sequencing? them in a study and we're going for uh, genome sequencing. You know, right oh. now the study is set up for whole exome sequencing. Oh, whole exome. My, ex my expectation is that it will probably uh, expand to whole genome sequencing uh, after some of the technology becomes a little bit more accessible. Um, mm -hmm. Not that the technology is not acceptable. So I think uh, right now the main issue is the bioinformatic analysis. It can be a little challenging right now to uh, manipulate whole genome sequencing yeah. data easily. It's probably an understatement. <laughs> yes, you know it is very challenging. Let's put it that way. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, but that is the goal right now. And you know, uh, we're going to assess for whether or not there are genes that are overlooked. Um, that potentially could be explaining some of these cancers. And uh, we'll also be kind of trying to take a look at uh, the polygenic world. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Is there an accumulation 
of small SNPs, SNPs, insertions, deletions, what have mm-hmm. you, is there a statistically significant difference between yeah. and what SNPs we are genome patients? markers? These uh, SNPs and SNPs. So yes, of course, audience you know. mutations, um, genome markers, and things. Yes, sorry, I should probably define some of the jargon <laughs> I'm using. Uh, but yes, I, I tend to use SNPs instead of SNPs. Just but that's a entire discussion in yeah. itself. You may be the I first person I've ever heard use the term SNV. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I like well, it. Maybe I'm going to keep it going. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> That's good. And how do people, um, you know, do you have to be a patient at Case Western? I mean, can you access this uh, trial otherwise? Um, you know, are there any like major things? Do you already have to have genetic testing to, you know, that's negative to enroll? Yeah, you know, right now we are, it is, uh, we're enrolling mainly out of uh, university hospitals mm-hmm. and uh, also from Simon Cancer Center. So right now, at the very least, um, it would be most helpful for those interested in this study to try and establish care one way or another uh, through the medical genetics department, uh, the Center for Human Genetics at University Hospitals Cleveland Medical Center. Uh, we're the main clinical uh, branch for Case Western Reserve University that would be the easiest way to get entry into the study. Yeah. Is what I would say. Yeah. That's Start right. with and do people need genetic negative genetic testing prior. Um, negative genetic testing will be part of the inclusion criteria, but I would just suggest to everyone for, you know, especially if you're encountering patients with such significant family histories to undergo a routine standard of care. Uh, mm-hmm. Clinical Grable, we call right now, whether it's a multi-cancer panel, some sort of you know formal assessment by a medical yeah. geneticist before yeah. you go down the road of a clinical study, because mm-hmm. then it may not be necessary. Yeah, or a genetics professional, or yeah, yeah whatever some sort is, of genetics available. Yeah, yeah. Getting back to even some of the beginning discussion, I mean, we know that a lot of uh, more um, you know uh, at point of care medical oncology, you know, breast surgeons. I mean, they're a lot of the time now they're seeing some of these patients uh, right up front too. In addition to uh, some of the other formal uh, genetics professionals, but it sounds like, yeah, at least the message is, you know, you know, try to get a thorough standard of care workup, at least, you know, in your area before maybe accessing uh, the next step, which would be something like, you know, this uh, study. Yes, exactly, TJ. You know, stand, standard of care is very important. Uh, you know, despite, I think, uh, the enthusiasm uh, in myself, certainly, but in the larger medical genetics and the larger medical oncology world, there's something to be said for standard of care. Certainly, NCCN guidelines are always evolving. You know, yeah. I think uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2 genetic testing for pancreatic cancer is a very new addition mm-hmm. uh, to that. Uh, but, you know, just uh, there's something to be said for uh, standard of care. And I, I think that also helps uh, patients not get intimidated. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. I, I think everyone gets worried when they say, oh, you're uh, such a rare case. You know, I, I think maybe in the medical professional community, we get uh, enthused and excited about rare cases. But uh, from the patient side, they never want to hear, oh, you're right. very unusual. Yeah, it's the right? last thing people want to hear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think it helps reassure patients. on like, hey, we know what we're doing. You know, we've been doing mm-hmm. this for a very, very long time. Uh, you may be hearing... It's maybe the first time that a lot of patients hear about medical genetics, I think, in recent years. But it's a long historic field. It's been around for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it sounds like, uh, yeah, with the newer 
uh, some of the streamlined training program options and things like that where uh, uh, we have a big future ahead of well-trained individuals like yourself entering uh, subspecialty fields, which is fantastic. Uh, I just want to say thank you so much, Dr. Tang, for coming on and spending your time. Um, I think this was, uh, you know, hopefully will be very useful for our, our audience uh, in terms of genetics education. You know, what are some of the, you know, studies going on, uh, you know, particularly for hereditary cancer that uh, could be sought after. Um, this was fantastic. So I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation, TJ. It's been an absolute pleasure to be on yeah. this podcast.